Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Everybody and welcome. You have tuned into episode number one hundred and seventy of Linux in the Ham Shack. I am your host, coming to you on Memorial Day, two thousand and sixteen. I'm Russ K five TUX, and we also have sitting across from me, we have Cheryl. Hello, everyone. And then from out in Billings, Montana, in the wild Great Sky Country, we have Bill any four RD. Howdy, the great sky country. What is that? Big, big sky, great sky, something like something that. Something like has, that, has to yeah. do with sky. Now, now we're, I'm in the magic city in the big sky country. Big sky country. I knew it was, there was a sky in there somehow. <laughs> yes, it's Memorial Day. It's the Monday after the weekend after Hamvention, more importantly. Woo! And we did have a great Hamvention, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in the show. But right now, we're going to jump into our amateur radio topics for tonight. The York, Nebraska, well, not the, a, well, it might be the, a, a York, <laughs> Nebraska Museum unveils amateur radio exhibit. Uh, 60 years of amateur radio enthusiasm is documented in a new exhibit at the Ann Bemis Palmer Museum in downtown York, Nebraska. This year, local resident Bob Weiler donated the collection of his father's six decades as a ham radio operator. Leo S. Weiler, 1904-1982, accumulated QSL cards from 96 countries. Oh, didn't get the old DXCC. Got close, though. A little short. Uh, each one sent back to confirm successful radio communication from his Hastings native. From what? Okay. From the. <laughs> from the Hastings native. Yes, apparently that's Hastings, Nebraska. Museum curator Kent Bedient and his staff put together a towering exhibit of Leo Weiler's cards, photos, and awards for his display, or for the display behind interior windows where they will remain until mid-June. So get there fast, folks, you want to see this. The source came from the yorknewstimes.com, and when I first saw the story, I got fooled. <laughs> I, was, I was reading this story, and I was wondering why this particular story was so impressive. Someone who had contacts in 96 countries you know not even getting a dxcc or anything like that why why this was so impressive the paper is the new times so this is a kind of feels like the new york times right look at it It, when you look at it it says it's the york new times but it looks strikingly like the new york times so i thought the new york times was reporting on an amateur radio operator i thought oh this is cool and then you take a look at it it's like oh no that's not what this is at all so (laughs) But anyway, if you happen to be in the next couple of weeks out in York, Nebraska, you should go ahead and check this out. And if you're yeah, not, I, would, I don't, wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> they, they do show a picture or two, I think, of the display. It's like a big wall of cards. And the thing is, I have QSL cards from a lot of those countries, too. I should be on a, in a museum in York, Nebraska. Well, you got to provide six decades worth of material for them. Yeah, and you okay. only have like two. And you have to be dead. Oh, uh, well, crap. We can, we can take care of that. <laughs> okay, this doesn't sound so good anymore. I think. <laughs> anyway, just a throwaway story. So let's move on to the next one. Uh, Canada procures special event prefixes for its sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial, sorry. It's the 150-year uh, anniversary 
Uh, at Dayton Hamvention, the Radio Amateurs of Canada announced that it has a secured permission for all Canada radio amateurs to use a special call sign prefixes to celebrate the 150th anniversary of, the, of Canada's uh, Confederation. National, regional, and local events will take place throughout 2017 to celebrate the anniversary, and Canadian amateurs will let their counterparts around the world know of their celebration by using the following special prefixes. Victor Alpha becomes Charlie Fox. This is going to be real confusing, isn't it? VE becomes CG. VO becomes CH. I I couldn't really understand uh, the significance of going to the, uh, the Charlie prefixes. Do you have any idea? Presumably just because the C is more... Uh, reminiscent of Canada than V, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Every time I hear a V or V <laughs> VA, I know exactly where it's at. Uh, yeah, this is. I don't know. This is gonna be interesting. They're consecutive. It's F G H and I C F C G C H and C I. When I hear a C call, I usually think of somewhere South or Central America, like Cuba, Chile, something like that. I think I they think, have some C's because I've heard some special event stations on uh, some previous contests. So in 2017, if you hear uh, CF, CG, CH, or CI, those will be special event calls for Canada for their sesquicentennial. I have to include any event that includes the word sesquicentennial because it's one of my favorite words. <laughs> I, I so love words. I love es- you know such esoteric words, words that have like really, really specific meanings. Yeah. <laughs> So somebody had to, had to invent a word for the 150th of something. There's probably one for the 151st, too, but that's just not as interesting. Yeah, sesquicentennial and one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, our our episode number 150 was called the sesquicentennial, just because I love that word. So there you go. Uh, okay. Uh, well, that, that story came from the Southgate Amateur Radio Club and information on where you can find out more information about the call signs and all that kind of thing uh, will be in the show notes. Let's see, Chile is CE, according to KB6NU. So there you go. So that sounds like Chilean. And I'm pretty sure, like I said, that uh, Cuba is CO. No, no, no. Cuba's an H call. Yeah. What's they're, what's they're, Portugal? Uh, Isn't Portugal a C call? Uh, I don't have my list of. Yeah, DXCC I don't have my entities. list ahead of me in front of me either. <laughs> I want to say Portugal is like CU. Cleewick says parsimonious is a good word. Parsimonious is a good word. CU is the Azores. Okay, well, that's Portugal. Yeah. Okay, so. Okay, there you go. Yep, yeah, so, all right, so CU. I, I, I got something right. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Portugal is CT. So Canada's going to be dancing all around all these other countries when they do the special event thing next year. <laughs> I but, think for, like, the first week, people are going to think there's some rare DX out there. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to be like, oh, you're in Montreal? Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I got Cuba. Oh, no, Montreal. Never mind. <laughs> Tra- Cuba is not rare DX. Trust no, me, no, there are I lots know, of but... Cuban radio stations out there. But anyway, it's funny. I just got a tweet from KB6NU saying, how do I access the chat room? But he's in the chat room. So- <laughs> Slightly delayed. I guess he found guess his so. way in here. Yeah. <laughs> It's welcome, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, enough about Canadian call signs for crying out loud. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if they're going to do like a, a big event like uh, the W1AW did where they do like a, you know, roving portable. I don't know if the RAC has their own uh, call sign or something special like that. But, yeah, I'm sure there's probably more information to come on this one as they uh, work it out. I'm I'm absolutely sure. So we do have another story. Yeah, we just talked about this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? Yes, we did. We talked about the person who submitted the request to the FCC for this change, and now apparently it's being backed by the AWRL. They're backing the 
idea of supporting removing the 15 dB restriction on amplifiers. Uh, in comments filed on May 26, the ARRL said it is strongly supporting a petition to the FCC seeking to eliminate an amateur services rule spelled out in Part 97.317, subsection A, paragraph 2, that amateur amplifiers not be able to boost the RF input signal by more than 15 dB. The petition for rulemaking, RM11767, was submitted in April on behalf of an amateur amplifier distributor, Expert Linears America, LLC of Magnolia, Texas. So there you go. The ARL is getting behind this, and so we probably will see a lift eventually in the 15 dB limit, which will be good all around, I'm sure, because they're coming out with new, uh, better ways to do signal amplification. So we'll have nice, quiet, high levels of amplification. The solid-state amplifiers have so much gain in them that uh, yeah, you almost have to tune them back <laughs> yeah. to, to meet the requirement if you're actually going to sell them. I just saw a news article that uh, Flex Radio is coming out with their own big amplifier. I wonder if they'll make a one of these as well. Uh, Flex Radio. Screw them. I still haven't got their Linux stuff done yet. <laughs> <laughs> Put out these $6,000 radios, but they can't find a developer to create a Linux client. Sorry if I sound bitter. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to our last amateur radio topic for the night. I threw this in here because it's always been something that's interested me. And I wasn't really sure about how the rules fell on the idea of third-party use of amateur radio. Because there are events all around, uh, some of them including Field Day and Joda, Jamboree on the Air, where unlicensed hams get a chance to operate radios in order to sort of get a feel for it and see if they like it, and presumably guide people into the hobby. So... I always wondered what it was, you know, what the deal was with third-party communication, like how that really works and how it fits in with the Part 97 rules and all that. Because, like, I have an HF rig here, and there's an unlicensed ham in the house who's staring at me. (laughs) (laughs) Or an unlicensed non-ham, I guess. But I was wondering, like, if I was on an HF net or something like that, could she get on and, you know, be me for an evening or something? And it looks like... You know, based on Joda and Field Day and other opportunities for other people to, as unlicensed operators, to to be on the air, that it is certainly possible. And the the rules specifically do not exclude that possibility. I brought up a couple of the relevant sections of Part 97 that talk about this. First one being Part 97, subsection 115, which says... Third party may participate in stating the message when the control operator is present at the control point and is continuously monitoring and supervising third party's participation. That seems to be the important bit. So yeah, as long as the person that's on the radio is, is not somebody who's lost their license or had their license revoked or something like that, you know, you can get almost anybody on the air. I mean, we do it all the time here with, uh, you know, Jamboree on the air. And uh, uh, we just, uh, you know, did a National Parks activation with a bunch of scouts. And uh, there's really no issue getting them on the air to make you know any kind of general contact, you know, as long as the licensed control operator has permissions to talk to somebody, you can definitely... Uh, chat with somebody they can't disclose or you know break any of the other rules like you know selling stuff online you know on the air and any of those other rules like that right and that's kind of the point of having the control operator at the helm so they can uh cut the transmission off or whatever if necessary if something uh goes against the part 97 rules 
So the idea there then is that, yes, it's permissible, and the other bit of this was the Part 97, Subsection 119, which deals with station identification, and it basically just says that the control operator is the the call sign to be used at the radio station, and it doesn't really matter who gives the call sign announcement as long as it is the proper one. So even the third-party operator can identify as the control operator as long as the control operator is present, which is the part 115 bit. So the rules definitely seem to allow for third-party communication, and that's a great way if you have somebody that just happens to be over your house and takes a look at your rig and says, ooh, that's kind of interesting, and you say, hey, do you want to give it a shot? Well, you can apparently do that. And I think we should encourage people to do that to help get them into the hobby. Got to advance the art of the amateur radio service. The article that I read also gave some operating guidelines for third-party operation, you know, indicating that there would be another person at the microphone or something like that during the communication so that parties on the other end sort of understood that if they happened to be looking at the QRZ call sign lookup database and they were hearing a woman's voice for a man's call sign, they would understand what the deal was. Getting people on the air is, 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 is you know, is a great part of the hobby. You know, they also allow administrators and whatnot to get a, you know, talk to the ISS station. Petro VA2XMX in the chat room says, bring them to 14313. It will make a great impression. And I don't know what's, <laughs> what's on 14313. Trash. <laughs> Trash. Okay. Yeah. There's some areas in, in every band that have some, uh, uh, yeah, lids as Petro would, would so nicely call them. <laughs> How eloquently put. Right. All right. So we're moving on to our open source topics tonight. I just found an article that was linked to by Slashdot, but it's actually on DistroWatch, and of course the link to it will be in the show notes, and it was of a person whose name is Jesse Smith, who went through the live update from a previous to a current version of five different distributions. Those distributions included Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, OpenSUSE, and FreeBSD. This was kind of neat because he went through the install process for each one, going by the documentation provided by each project for doing live updates, then discussed what his thoughts on it were, like how easy it was, how good the documentation was, uh, were there any unexpected problems, were there any workarounds that were necessary to get things to work, whether the upgrade process ultimately worked properly or didn't work properly, And I don't want to go through and outline all of the things that he went through because it's a nice, well-written, well-organized document. And the link to it will be in the show notes. So if you want to see how live updates work for these different distributions, including BSD, so if you kind of want to get your feet wet in BSD as as opposed to Linux, you could check this out as well. It's a nice little write-up, and it gives you an overview of some of the more popular distributions out there, all of which support ham radio software. So you can see for yourself, if you want to check this out, if uh, the live installation or the live update process is, is one that you could handle as a novice user, or maybe it takes a little extra effort, or maybe there's some things, some caveats you have to be watchful for and stuff like that. Seemed like an interesting article. Um, I read through it myself, and it only takes about 10 minutes of your time, so maybe you want to check that out next time you have to upgrade your Ubuntu install before it blows up in your face. I didn't get a really a chance to look at the article, and I've I've used... You know, several of the different systems, especially in my experiments to upgrade the shack box. And I didn't go to FreeBSD, but I have used the port system before, and it, it works quite well. I use the port system all the time for Mac ports on Mac. Oh, yeah, Homebrew, right? Uh, I don't use Homebrew. I use Mac ports. 
Oh, okay. I so, think I've used homebrew. Yeah, homebrew homebrew is supposed to be like the latest and greatest is what the cool kids do, and I, I'm not one of the cool kids, so I use Mac ports. Yeah, I'm all trendy. <laughs> You're all hipster. All right, fine. I'm a hipster, yeah. yeah. <laughs> get my beard. <laughs> I, well, I've got my beard, too. I just try not to be a hipster. <laughs> Actually, you don't uh, have a beard. We had to give you one. That That's true. I, uh, <laughs> I The magic of... Uh, the magic Gimp. of GIMP, yes. <laughs> I'll talk about this next one, Open365 and Code. Uh, Open365 appears to be an amalgam of LibreOffice Live, C-File, and KDE. Basically, this is an online office suite, a la Google Apps or you know Office 365 from Microsoft. I attempted to install the file sync on uh, Ubuntu 16.04, and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of there. I don't know if that was your opinion on the vaporware. Uh, it does work. It's very slow to load the individual applications. So I think they're uh, still in the early stages of it. I mean, uh, their website and the access portal looks well refined. Obviously, uh, their web gurus have done the uh, done the CSS justice. The applications are pretty much the same as anything that you'd see online. The uh, writer application looks just the same. Uh, the spread. You know, the calc application spreadsheet works just as intended. So, I mean, it, you know, functionally, I think it works. And if you're using, you know, just like a Chromebook or some kind of a window or, I'm sorry, internet only uh, device, I mean, this would be a good way to uh, store your documents. But uh, again, since it's fairly new and uh, not a lot of, not a lot of information on it, uh, I wouldn't put anything there that you want to keep. Well, I actually installed the client on the Mac I was using at the time, and I went to the website, the cloud.open365.io, and got into it via the web, and I saw that it was a cloud storage and file sharing application very close in likeness to own cloud, but I did not see the part where you could do collaborative document editing. I don't know if I just missed that, but I didn't see it. Is that something that was accessible to you via the web interface by logging into it, or did you not do that? Well, I mean, they have uh, sharing and stuff. I didn't uh, try that out to see if you could see, you know, you know, individual edits from different users and stuff like that. But, you know, I'd assume they're probably using a similar code base to some of the other applications. Uh, I haven't really experimented enough to know uh, exactly how that's going to look and feel. It definitely feels very similar to, uh, you know, the Google app setup. You know, the, even the web, the portal looks exactly the, the very similar to like Google Drive when you go in. Yeah, for the sharing part of it, it definitely looks similar to me. But like I said, I didn't see the document editing part of it. And I did see that in the code application, code being an acronym for the Collabora Online Development Edition, which is built on top of own cloud. And they put the LibreOffice uh, file editing capabilities and spreadsheet and that kind of thing on top of own cloud. And it's downloadable as a VM image, uh, specifically a VMware image, a VMDK, which you can load in VMware or VirtualBox or whatever, anything that supports the VMDK. And I did that on my laptop. I actually got the thing running, connected to it via local interface uh, on port 9980, and it basically presents you with an own cloud instance that you log into and then enable the Collabora part of it. And then you set up users and set up group permissions and stuff like that, and then you can share documents across users, and it allows you to edit live 
using a LibreOffice style interface, the the files, uh, spreadsheet files and document files and presentation files and stuff like that that are on the server. You can have multiple people accessing the documents, but I did not do that because I was it was just me and I didn't have the opportunity to try and edit it by more than one user at one time. So I don't know how that looks, but you can certainly have multiple people edit the document. And like I said, I just don't know how that works as far as syncing across people making simultaneous edits. Obviously, you're looking at this for an Etherpad uh, possible replacement, right? (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) That's why it's in here. I thought that it looked awfully awfully familiar for uh, what you've been talking about lately. (laughs) But it's also kind of nice for other people to have an alternative to Microsoft's platform, like Microsoft's Office 365 or Google Docs, because this is something that's open source and you can download and run it on your own servers. And it's already based on an open source or multiple open source projects, those being uh, own cloud and LibreOffice. The whole thing is open source. The whole thing can be run on your own servers and you'd have a whole cloud office infrastructure. And the entire download, I think, was about 760 megs. So not too bad at all. And you can have all of this for yourself and it's all private. It's all open source. Uh, links to both projects, Open365 and the Collabora Office project code will be in the show notes. Since I already use OwnCloud, putting Collabora on top of it and using it as a an Etherpad replacement might be great since Etherpad is dead. At least the original Etherpad is dead. Yeah. And, and I never did like Etherpad Lite. So if, if this works out, we'll definitely start using it. It looks pretty cool. Cool. Raspberry Pi Zero gets camera module and retains $5 price. Raspberry Pi founder Eben Upton explains that through dumb luck, the same camera connector that the Raspberry Pi Foundation uses for its development kits just happened to fit into the right side of the Zero. By moving the service components a little to the left and rotating the activity LEDs, the team was able to close the feature gap between the Zero and the bigger Pi boards. If you've already invested in a camera module for an existing project, you'll need to invest in a new cable. The CSI connector on the Zero is 3.5 millimeters smaller than the adapter on the Pi 3, meaning it can't simply be hot swapped. But if you're new to Raspberry Pi and are looking for a DIY project, the addition of a connector may allow you to build a cheap home security system or have some fun making a tiny spy camera. And the story came from Endgadget. Yep, that's pretty cool. So uh, a slight tweak to the hardware on the Pi Zero board, basically moving a couple of connectors slightly on the board, gave them the opportunity to add a camera module to it, and they didn't require any increase in hardware cost. So there you go. Still can get a $5 Pi. I'm telling you, make a doggy camera so we can see what they do during the day. That might be something worth doing, yeah. (laughs) Now we'll find out that they chase bugs and sleep. And crap on the carpet, yep. (laughs) But that we know, because we have evidence. Yes. (laughs) So moving on from there, our open source topics, we're going to talk about Linux and the ham shack. So I'm going to talk a little bit about WSJTX and JT65, which I just really started using a couple of weeks ago, right before Hamvention. I was having some issues with it because I was installing WSJTX out of the Debian repo, which was really, really old. I want to say in the Jesse distro, it's version 1.1. So I went to the WSJTX website instead and found that the current version is 1.6. And I was having all kinds of trouble getting my sound card to link up. It was giving me incompatible bit rate errors and, and all kinds of crazy things. 
I downloaded 1.6, and that seemed to take care of that problem, except one of the decoders is apparently proprietary. It's called Kilo Victor Alpha Sierra Delta. It's part of the decode suite that actually decodes the JT9 and JT65 signals in the package. It's not included in the WSJTX distribution package for Debian and stuff because it is proprietary. It doesn't fall under an open source license because it's a binary blob. So I was having trouble with that. I was still getting the decode window to show that there were signals out there. I was getting like the CQs and and the information in the uh, left-hand window, and I guess I should talk a little bit about the way WSJTX is set up. You have uh, three windows, basically. You have the left window, which shows you current received signals. You have the right window, which shows you the actual transmissions, like signal reports, uh, 7.3s, RRRs, stuff like that. Yeah, it's the one that's actually you have your uh, your channel selected on. Right. So it's actually your RX. So as soon as you double-click one of those uh, users on the left side, it brings it over to the right side and retunes your your window. And that's I think that's where KVASD where actually runs is on that uh, RX panel. And there's also a waterfall window, which shows you the signals being received uh, on whatever frequency you're on, which is pretty typical of digital modes having a waterfall. So KVASD was giving me a problem. It would it would show me that there were signals being received, but it would not be able to decode what was out there in the right-hand window. So there is a procedure, and there's a link to uh, a blog post that I found, or it was a mailing list post, one or the other, that actually explains how to download and install and get working the KVASD decoder if you happen to be using version 1.6. But I also found out in doing some more research that you can download 1.7. It's a beta. It's not currently supported. They say it's unofficial right now. But they have dropped the KVASD decoder in version 1.7. So if you uh, link to the PPA or link to the DEB uh, repo, and the link to that, of course, will be in the show notes as well, you can download and install version 1.7 which I did, and that works 100%, no problem whatsoever. So if you're wondering what all this is about, it's JT65 and JT9 are digital modes for basically QRP operation. I mean, you can you can do them QRO if you want, but they're full duty cycle. They're 100% duty cycle modes like Whisper. And WSJTX operates JT65 and JT9, and, and what they basically are is... Instead of whisper, which is like a beacon mode, where you just kind of put your call sign out there and you listen for other people's call signs and you operate on as low power as you possibly can to show signal propagation, JT65 and JT9 are actual communication modes. You can actually have a QSO uh, using these modes. They're for very low power operation. They say 20 watts ERP is maximum. 5 to 10 watts is typical, and of course you can use less than that if you want. Basically what you'll do is you'll transmit for 47 seconds, and then you'll pause, and then you'll receive and decode for 47 seconds, and then you'll pause, and it goes back and forth. Uh, The software, WSJTX, is cross-platform and open source. It runs on Mac, Windows, and Linux. I was using it on Linux. It interfaces with hamlib so that gives you your rig control 
Uh, it also interfaces with call sign lookup databases. So when you see a CQ in your left-hand window, you can double-click on it. It will move that QSO to the right-hand window. It will generate some standard JT65 and JT9 responses to send back during a QSO. And it will also do the call sign lookup and adjust your receive and transmit window to be aligned with the frequency that it received the initial transmission on. So it's pretty much at that point an automated process. You have to turn on your transmit capability in order for WSJTX to know that you actually want to send a reply. You can leave that on once you enable it as long as you're in a QSO so that you can send back and forth the information that you need to send. Down in the lower right-hand corner of your main window, there is a list of standard messages. The way a QSO typically works is... Someone will CQ with their grid square. You will reply. You can send your grid square, receive a, a signal report, send a signal report, you know, act, do an RRR, receive an RRR, send a 7-3, receive a 7-3, then you kind of go on your way. And this takes, you know, since there's a minute in uh, transmission on each way, you're looking at a full QSO taking 6 to 10 minutes, depending on how much data you want to send back and forth. You can also send custom messages if you want. WSGTX allows you to customize uh, the way you send messages back and forth. I've been using JT65 and JT9 for quite a while, but just for the application alone, I mean, the the 1.60 version uh, fixes all the audio issues, and that's that's why when you went to it, you had no more audio issues with uh, with uh, WSJTX. You can get it to work on the older versions by creating some um, fake uh, audio uh, devices that it will then use. Earlier versions do have a problem with that, but uh, they have the new version 1.6 and greater. Obviously, run great. Um, there's a couple of settings that I would I would I would recommend when you do install it. Uh, when you go into the general settings, you put your call sign in there and your grid square, so that's all set up. But I would go ahead and checkbox everything in the display column. You know, adding a blank line between decoding periods is really helpful, so you can see just within this time frame, this one minute cycle that these users are uh, the ones that responded or called CQ because you don't want to go back up too far on your on your band activity and scroll up and click somebody that's already in a QSO um, so you don't you know double with somebody else. Uh, another thing, display distance in miles. That's not checked for by default. So, uh, you know, unless you want to look at everything in kilometers, I, I would check that. And uh, the checking, I think uh, the TX messages is already done. And uh, the show DX entity is is probably useful with log integration. Uh, when you use CQR log, you can run uh, WSJTX in remote mode, so all your logging goes directly in. Otherwise, you'll have to kind of import from the ADIF file. And I believe uh, some of the other, uh, like if you run this in Windows, a lot of people use that uh, JT alert or something similar to that. I, I forget what it's called. And it'll also connect into various logging programs like DX Labs and HRD and stuff like that. So you can go ahead and log contacts automatically so you're not having to, you know, hand lift that ADIF file back and forth. Uh, a couple other things are runaway TX Watchdog is very good, especially if you're running CQ uh, and you walk away because somebody called you away. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, uh, it'll turn itself off after about uh, five to six uh, TX cycles. And uh, disable TX after sending 73. Otherwise, you might send 73 over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> and the double-click call that sets uh, TX enable is, a, is another great one. Uh, some people do the CWID after 73. I, I don't think it's necessary 
especially if uh, people aren't time synced properly. And this is a very time synced uh, application here. You you have to keep your uh, your your computer clock uh, synced up to the second. So uh, you don't. You'd, I always try to sync my time manually right before I uh, start using it. That way, uh, you you don't lose any decodes and you're not transmitting out of the window. Right. I always I always use NTP to keep my system on time. Uh, and if you if you run NTP the NTP daemon and do your initial sync, which it will do once you start it up, it will keep your clock synced within I think it's about a thousandth of a second all the time. So then you don't really have to worry about it. I got myself into trouble with the enable TX on double click. That didn't work out too well for me because I wasn't really paying attention and started TXing on stuff that I wasn't really paying attention to. So you <laughs> might want to watch that one a little bit. Yeah. And the and other thing is if you w- if you double click on a contact that it will it will automatically select the mode to send that was the mode received. So that's a good thing too because you can alternate between JT9 and 65. Yeah, it'll it'll decode both JT65 and JT9 at the same time. This version also will do uh, Whisper. So if you wanted to run in propagation mode, you can you can run it in Whisper. Okay. I was going to mention that WA0EIR mentioned uh, the PSKReporter.info site has uh, all, you can send all your decodes and and conversations to there. So uh, and you have to turn that on. That's not on by default. That's over in the reporting uh, tab in settings. And there's a little button there, a little checkbox says enable PSK reporter spotting. And that's highly recommended as well because uh, I've definitely had some people uh, contact me after the fact and say, hey, I saw you're on 30 meters. Can we get a SCAD going or, or you know, know when you're on? And uh, it's, it's a great tool to see uh, kind of worldwide propagation and uh, who can hear what. The, the application there is very, very good because you can click on a call sign and you can see what they're hearing and you can click on anybody else and obviously – uh, see see where their where their current um, propagation exists. It's pretty fun. I, I I like it. It's a it's a good mode. I've used it on six meters as well. And six meters typically with the short openings, uh, most of those contacts are run about four minutes, four to five minute cycles. You don't run the extra uh, seventy three cycle. You normally make a little custom one that says Roger Roger. You know the three R's and seventy three because that'll go ahead and complete the contact and you can move on. And I've worked quite a few uh, on the short uh, six-meter openings. All right, so that's cool. You should try out JT65. This is a real basic overview of JT65 and JT9 modes. Um, they're, they're great digital modes. They're easy to get into. Um, they're low power, so you can do them all day long. And with the Whisper integration, it's really nice because you get the propagation reporting and all of that built in. The calling frequencies for... The modes are generally six kilocycles up from where PSK is. So if it's 14070, it's 14076. This stuff is all built into WSJTX. All you have to do is click on, you know, 15 meters, 20 meters, 30 meters, whatever it puts you on the, on the frequency you need to be on. So no big deal. There's a thousand other bells and whistles and knobs to tune. Um, when it comes to WSJTX, you can, you can really get lost in it if you want to. If you just want to get in and try it, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's a fun mode. I got worked all states on JT65, and I've worked quite a bit of DX on uh, JT65 and JT9. So Yeah, the low-power modes are great because it's a lot easier to make a contact in some of these places where the propagation is a little weaker and you're not doing uh, voice, stuff like that. Uh, you, you can get to more places, these low-power, weak-signal modes, than you can with the more popular ones, I guess. All right, so moving on from... WSJTX and the JT9 and JT65 modes. Bill's going to tell us about the latest version of Shackbox. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've finally done it. I've upgraded the Shackbox here. I'm using it right now. So it it is in production. 
Uh, I decided to go with uh, Ubuntu Studio 16.04 just because I like all that gobbledygook, <laughs> all the audio video stuff. Uh, I want to play with uh, streaming and, uh, you know, video casting, screen casting, all that good stuff. So to be uh, clear, I, we're not talking about Shackbox. We're not talking about... Well, it F- does everything. It's not F-Zero FAK's Shackbox because he has a no. product called Shackbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this well, is your shack machine. This is my shack box. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's let's get that right. And uh, you know, I, I went through. I installed the uh, you know Opera Developer. I've been using that as my my daily driver just to kind of get the feel for Opera, and I'm I'm kind of liking it. Uh, it definitely does not have Flash. Flash is not installed by default, which is good because I don't want it on there anyway. And uh, so every time I go to a website that's Flash only, I say, well, I guess I didn't need to go see that website. Uh, fortunately, those are getting few and far between these days. Most everybody's going to HTML5 or, or something a lot better because, yeah, the Flash support uh, needs to go away. Die a slow yes. death. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the, the OBS installed, 0.14.2. We've talked about that in previous shows. CQR log running 2.01. And uh, that I'm actually running uh, the PPA for uh, OKCQR's package. So I always get his packages. You obviously will have something completely different in the uh, repos and it'll be outdated and won't work very well. So definitely suggest doing the PPA for OKCQR if that's the log of your choice. Hamlib, I'm running a compiled version of 301 just because, again, I think they're still back in the 1.x series in the repositories. Uh, I'm still running WSJTX 1.6. Now that you talk about 1.7, I might just go ahead and compile that and uh, run that. Do they have devs for that yet or no? They do, yes. Oh, sweet. So, yeah, I might, uh, might try playing around with that tonight. Uh, also installed from uh, Kamal Mustafa's uh, FL Digi uh, PPA as well. So I have all the latest uh, FL Digi builds. Definitely recommend getting, uh, getting his uh, package repository there added to your list. Uh, if you want to use FL Digi, which is good for your RIDI modes and PSK31, and you know you can even use it for a CW decoder and a pinch, it does work. So far, it's running really good, except for the dual monitor support. Um, and I think that's related to an XFCE uh, bug that they're working on. <laughs> it uh, tends to drop my uh, second monitor when I uh, do other random stuff, like, uh, I, I don't know, like the screensaver kicks in or something like that. <laughs> it goes away. Uh, which can be a little annoying, uh, but again, I, I think they're working on that, and uh, I don't think that exists in some of the other uh, windowing environments. I like the simplicity of XFCE, so I think I'm just going to deal with it on my end. And uh, yeah, other than that, I mean, it, it runs great. Everything seems to be running perfectly fine as intended. I have not messed around too much with linking all the audio devices together and mixing them and stuff like that, but uh, I will be doing that shortly. So have you chosen Ubuntu Studio because of OBS or just because? Uh, yeah, I mean, mainly because of OBS, but that's not really in there anyways. I have the, the PPA for that as well. <laughs> okay. So you can install it on anything. I've, I've always liked Ubuntu Studio. That actually was my last build, too. I, I was running, uh, I had 1504 and 1510 running uh, Ubuntu Studio build. I just like seeing all the apps that they put in there, and I don't always think of all the... Uh, all the things I may, may want to play with, and they have just about everything kind of pre-installed for doing audio effects and, and, and everything else. It puts everything that you could possibly need to do any kind of audio or video editing, or, including uh, graphic design. They have uh, just about every package, you know, GIMP, FrontForge, Inkscape, Krita, you name it, it's on there. So it's a little bit of bloat, but uh, 
Hey, that's why they make hard drives so cheap. <laughs> I don't think that's why they do, but you, you should be you should be glad that they do, I suppose. Yes, I'm I'm very glad because <laughs> <laughs> I put too much junk on my computers, so yeah. it saves me from going around and finding all these things and trying them out. I think the last time I used Ubuntu Studio, it was like twelve oh four or something, or twelve ten maybe. I'm uh, kind of hooked on the Debian Ham Radio Pure Blend because I love the fact that it's basically just Debian with the stuff on top of it. And a lot of stuff that is being released in Ubuntu PPAs, they're also putting out source list files that can just be put as an add-on to the Etsy app sources list inside Debian. Even though they're downloading the Ubuntu packages, usually for the equivalent version of whatever Ubuntu is to the Debian repo, like Trusty for Jesse and so on and so forth, and they work just fine, so I've I've been able to get away with um, using the Ubuntu repos in Debian without too much trouble. All right, well, we also have a little flash topic here about PyQSO 0.3 being released. Uh, it's a simple contact logging tool that we have actually talked about on the show, but it's been a little while since we've talked about it. The latest version was released a couple of days ago, May 28, 2016. It supports HamQTH, which is nice, not relying on QRZ.com, which we don't like here. Uh, it also includes bookmarking of Telnet-based DX cluster servers, pointing to uh, Python 3 uh, instead of Python 2, which is nice. It's progressive. Uh, has a bunch of various code cleanups in it. Uh, also has a list of valid ADIF modes and a list of ADIF bands and frequency ranges. Yeah, it's looking pretty good. Uh, I, I like the look of it. it uh, it's kind of nice and clean. I don't know if it'll override my uh, necessity for CQR, you know, log but uh i'll definitely uh take a look at it soon since i uh, got the new version out yep it's always nice to see that these products are still maintained and actively developed and uh people are, are working on them and keeping this stuff uh current so it's very nice even though it's a 0.3 i remember it being uh, uh fully functional and, and rather uh, well polished for a python app even though it hasn't come to a 1.0 yet and with that we're done talking for a few minutes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i found uh, a track to play for some music uh the name of the group is the data weatherman and i think it's actually just a guy kind of like heffervescent it's a group that's just a person but with digital music anymore that you can be a person and do everything track called mo from the album traveling songs which came out earlier this year january 2016 so it's relatively new stuff uh he's out of france this runs about four and a half minutes uh you can find it on jumendo and we'll go ahead and play it here and then maybe discuss it later we'll find out
M.O. by the Data Weatherman. Yeah, I like that. That was a cool song. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was real nice. I'm picking the good stuff. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> For once, anyway. So anyway, moving on from the music, I wanted to do a quick, and I mean very quick, Hamvention wrap-up. The only thing I really wanted to say about it is we had a great time. I wanted to thank everybody who donated to our Hamvention generosity campaign. By the time it was all over and done, we raised $565. We actually wound up getting donations in excess of that at Hamvention. Wow. We got pretty close to our goal, and it wound up basically covering dollar for dollar our expenses. I mean, we, we pretty much broke exactly even. That's great. We had moved from where we were in the North Hall to the East Hall, and we were kind of wondering how that was going to play out for us, but it turned out to be a good move, actually, because we were talking to people non-stop all three days i mean there were a few people that went to try to find us in the north hall because they knew we were going to be there but figured out after looking at the book where we were we tried to publish it on twitter and facebook and stuff like that where we were going to be and you know a lot of people just kind of wandering around looking for us and we we were in what i would consider an out-of-the-way place but honestly there was plenty of foot traffic, and we were right near the East Hall entry door, so there were always people going through, and the scoot-around booth was right behind us. So anytime anyone rented a scooter, they had to go right by us to get into the expo hall. As far as talking to folks, we did really well. I mean, I got sick with food poisoning again. 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 Uh, we didn't actually wind up at Hamvention until noon on Friday. 
but from Friday noon through the end of Friday and then all day Saturday and even all day Sunday, I mean, we were we were talking with people the whole time. We had no breaks whatsoever. We were figuring we would pack up early on Sunday and get out early, but we didn't. No. We wound up packing up late and getting out late because there were just people right up until even after the show was was over. Uh, we had people at the booth talking to us, so it was it was fantastic. I think we had about 150 or so uh, Linux distributions handy. We got rid of all of them and had to go to more. Best Buy and make more. Wow. And we had a couple of people say, wait, I've got thumb drives in my RV. Let me go grab those instead. So we were doing things like that all day up until I think the last one we burnt was at one forty-five, two o'clock-ish yeah, something like on that. Sunday. And it was over at 2. Well, it was actually over at one fifteen, <laughs> but we were just. <laughs> yeah, it was so, the important question is: Did you win anything? We didn't no, we did not win anything. Yeah. We we didn't actually. I didn't actually buy any raffle tickets. I didn't win anything on the W five KUB thing either. <laughs> <laughs> I met W five KUB while I was there. I met K four CDN Kale. Um, we we're going to be doing some crossover episodes with him uh, and Ham Radio three sixty. So I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. Yeah, it was just a good time. We talked to so many people. We promoted Linux, you know, for three straight days. Couldn't have asked for better. We're going to do everything in our power to be there again next year. The last thing I wanted to say is that our mystery donor did it again. We we yes. still haven't figured this out. <laughs> We've been there for I'm six years. Sure. And after the first year, we decided that we needed to start finding out or tried to find out who this mystery donor is. Whoever it is is very clever about putting the money in the box because we never see him do it. After the first year, we started watching. Even though we're paying attention, it still happened, and it happened again this year. We don't know who it is because they clearly want to be anonymous. They're very stealthy about how they put the money in the box. Thank you. And and we want to thank them profusely. I mean, they obviously know who they are. We, we would recognize them if we could, but we can't. I don't want to say what the actual amount was, but it's very significant. I mean, it's in the multiple-digit percentages of the entire thing we took in. So it's one donation. Um, and it's always been a nice... Yeah, it's, it's, it's know, always it's, nice. Yeah, it's it's always helped with the expense of getting there and getting home. And if, and, you, if you listen to all of our post-Hamvention episodes all the way back to the beginning, time. you'll hear this every time. Thanks to everybody who donated both at Hamvention and prior to and after, actually, Hamvention. So... Yeah, and to the um, listeners that came and talked to us and said, hey, I listened to the show. That yeah, we nice. had lots of those. Yeah. We had people from all over the world come and talk to us, so it was great. We got to move on. We got uh, another bit of feedback. I got an email from Andy, Golf 7 Uniform Hotel November. And I always love getting feedback from someone other than someone in the United States. I just, I don't know. It gives me the warm fuzzies. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Andy says, hi, Russ. I'm a big fan of your show. Uh, have been listening for a few years now. Great stuff. I use Linux pretty much all over my shack. It's really a virtual shack because I don't have any physical space in the house. Have a look at, and there's a link that we'll put in the show notes. Uh, hope all's good and keep up with the great work. 7-3, Andy G7UHN. And there's actually a bunch more of this uh, email that came in that's uh, not relevant to the show. So I eliminated that. But the link to the video that he posts is fantastic. It actually shows how he has his... Uh, shack set up and basically everything is done remotely he has created a menu system for himself where he can link to his remote transceivers and connect to his sdrs so he can receive via gqrx and he even has a camera pointed at a 
backlit cross needle LED power meter hidden under a desk somewhere so he can actually see a live camera image on his desktop because he can't actually see the meter. And all of this was really cool. So you should definitely check out that video and see what innovative people can do with their shacks, especially if they have to be hidden in a closet somewhere or out of sight. So it's pretty amazing. He even has a remote controlled antenna switcher controlled via his Linux desktop. So he can sw- uh, switch between, I think it was a Yagi and a loop. Really neat stuff. Everyone should check out that video and see what can be done with the power of Linux in their ham shack. Everyone should check it out. And of course, the link will be in the show notes. Or you could just look up G7UHN and you'll find it. All right, with that, that's all the feedback we had for this week. And that's all the announcements we had for this week. So we're down to Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Woo-hoo. So let's talk about some fagitis. <laughs> I <really> wish <laughs> that's one of my favorite things from family guy ever <laughs> when he pulls up to the drive-thru and says give me a hundred of them fajitas <laughs> <laughs> all right yes so. all right this week we we're talking about fajitas otherwise known as fajitas <laughs> and this recipe is a really easy way to prep a dish that's pretty well a favorite in this house our favorite fajitas of all time were chili's mushroom jack fajitas, which had mushrooms, bacon, and jack cheese, you know, melted over them. So I'm going to try to take this and do the mushroom jack one of these days when I actually get around to making cooking. That's it. Cooking. When I get around to cooking again, this recipe is for oven-baked chicken fajitas. Needs an onion, bell pepper, uh, chicken breast, some fajita seasoning, some oil, tortillas, sour cream, salsa, cilantro if you want it dice everything up and or slice it up and stick it in a pan and stick it in the oven uh including the raw chicken which is a good plus you don't have to pre-cook that stuff in about 30 45 minutes you've got dinner and now russ has got a mouthful of skittles (laughs) 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 sounds yummy yeah Uh, fajitas are always good you can't go wrong with the mexican street food Kale said he apologized for not showing up at the booth. He kept telling me every time I went to visit him at Ham Radio 360's booth that he was going to come by and say hi, and he wanted to talk recipes with you. He said he went toward our booth three times. Twice we were, you were slammed, and once you weren't there. So Of course. So that's why he didn't show up. Yeah, the few times I actually ran to like go to the bathroom or go grab something to drink or something, or got stuck in line buying your new Raspberry Pi for an hour... I got two new Raspberry Pi 3s, one of which I'm trying to put Pi Play on, which I can't wait to get that working. I found all of the components I need to actually set up the JAMA interface for my Pi and connect via HDMI to VGA to CGA converters so my old upright arcade cabinet I can use with the Raspberry Pi using the original CGA monitor. Ooh. Nice. So can't wait to get that set up. Then you have to buy a new control panel for it. I'm just going to build a panel. They have a JAMA control converter uh, that's USB. Plug it into the Pi, wire up the the buttons and joysticks. And then Pi Play is supposed to do all of the emulators. uh, MAME, Sega, SNES, blah, 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 blah. That's cool. Very cool. You should get on that. I'm I'm working on it. And the components (laughs) are not that expensive, actually. Um, The HDMI to VGA converter costs like $9 or something. And then the VGA to CGA converter is like 19 so that will do the video part of it and then the jamma interface costs about 40 bucks are we going to repaint that cabinet 
probably I'm going to have to actually cut some holes so I can put on the extra buttons and stuff like that. But it should be pretty cool. I think and then I have to figure out what kind of what kind of power output the default power supply in the cabinet actually puts out because I have no idea. I don't know what a standard PCB is. It's probably 12 volt, but most of the stuff that I'm looking at is 5 volt. So may have to do some uh, modifications. Some, yeah, some work with that. We'll figure it out. That game came out on when? Galaga three came out in eighty two. Okay. Eighty three. Some, so some, somewhere around there. Forty years old. Thirty years old. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kicking. So and it, it hasn't blown up yet. No, it so. hasn't blown up yet. They have new LED monitors that that hook up that actually fit into cabinets, but they're kind of pricey. So can't wait to have a good main cabinet. That'll be great. Especially when Plains it's of, based on the Pi three. Old school arcade, huh? Yep. Yeah, we actually have uh, two Galaga three machines. And a, a Williams Bad Cats pinball in our game nice. room. All right, enough about video games, ma- video games, and, and vaginas. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I have some bad. random dog in my yeah. garage eating dog food off the floor. <laughs> Interesting. That's not your dog. No, I think it's my neighbor's dog. I was like, all of a sudden, I hear this this collar and this is like, <laughs> <laughs> like what the heck? I had to walk over there for a second. I was like, oh, there's a Hi. dog <laughs> spilled dog food in my garage. <laughs> That's what you get for spilling dog food in your garage. Well, you know, when you have kids and they're the ones that fill in the dog's dish, yeah. it uh, doesn't get to, to be oh, done clean. Because you're saying you're feeding them dog food. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> sometimes it's okay. <laughs> Don't call protective services. All right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So it's time for our social media roundup. So take Yay. it away. All righty then. So for donations and subscriptions, we have Jonas Rulo, Jeremy Hall, Michael Connolly, Harrison Kyle, Scott Pettigrew, Bob Yerke, Paul Griffith, Ronald Ike, Johnny Kinsey, Brian Smith, John Spriggs, Robert Halliday, Ben Schram, Michael Aiello, John Clark, Rob Branch Dash, Edward Donnelly, Donald Gover, Alan Wilson, Stephen Sainer, Dylan Engel, Jason Marinero, DeRonald Nesler, James Blocker, Doug Redder, Mike Lasky, Darren King, Petro Karsakis, Donna Farron, Gary Horlick, Bill Stearns, and Bill Piotter. On Facebook this week, we had Robbie Pitts. Andy Rafferty, Dennis Williams, Tommy Gober, Clint Grimsley, and Crooked Feather. On Google Plus was Jim Stanley. On Twitter, Twitter, there was at Carbone, at JMoose12000, Yalagan underscore T, Titzler, Magnolia DXASSN, Ham Radio underscore OE, Kedging, Joel Camp, Maze Cool, ON3GPS, W4ADL, Jim Stanley, Daniel J. Peter. No one joined us on YouTube. And on our mailing list, we have W4ALD, KF6FV, and K4CDN. And there were no merchandise sales. And that is, in fact, that, that. The show is, like, over that. (laughs) So I get to uh, push the button here, and there's, like, some music. Wow. It was kind of loud. Actually. <laughs> Let me turn that down just like a scoush. There we go. 
All right, so the show is over, but you can still become an LHS ambassador. You can visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you might represent Linux in the Hamshack at a nearby Linux Con or Hamfesta. And we have a couple of Linux Fests coming up. We have Ohio Linux Fest and Southeast Linux Fest. So if you want to represent us there, let us know and do it quick. Uh, we love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info. You can comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter. Or leave a voicemail at one nine zero nine LHS show. That's one nine zero nine five four seven seven four six nine. You can visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on Freenode, and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to T-shirts can be purchased at www.cafepress.com/stroke LHS Podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on a sponsored ad on the right-hand column of the home page. We are working on some new merchandise with uh, K1NSS, so hopefully that will be soon and we'll be able to reveal it soon. You can listen to us live every other Monday at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0100 Zulu in the summer, 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website. Please check out http colon stroke stroke lhspodcast.info. For everything you ever wanted to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and all of the people who donated both before, at, and after Hamvention. We really appreciate it. And thank you for all for being dedicated listeners to Linux in the Hamshack. My name is Russ, K5TUX. I'm broadcasting from Studio 3D in Southwest Missouri. But across from me is Cheryl. Goodbye, everyone. And we also have from the Big Sky Country out in Billings, Montana, Bill, NE4RD. Thanks a lot, everyone. And we will see you in a couple of weeks' time to do it all over again. Take care, everybody. my place.